you so much for joining us today on our 16th episode. And today we have a very special guest on. His name is Jackson Pios. Now, Jackson is a PhD candidate over at the University of Western Australia, and he's currently doing research in the area of intermittent dieting with a particular look at diet breaks. Jackson is also a competitive physique athlete. He is a Simpsons and anime enthusiast. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us today, Jackson. Please introduce yourself. First things first, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It is a pleasure. So yeah, I am a PhD candidate at UWA, as you said. Sort of my my university credentials go as far as um, a double degree, Bachelor of Science in Sports Science and Exercise and Health. I then moved on to honours degree in Exercise Physiology. Um, And I did quite well in that year um, where I I graduated with first class and that earned me some sort of scholarship support later on. Um, And then the university approached me with a a PhD um, proposal sort of all paid for with with a bit of a salary on the side as well. So quite blessed to be in the position that I am now because... I was always super interested in in sports nutrition and and, and sort of exercise science and and now I'm sort of in a position where I'm able to sort of actually get in the trenches and tests and research some of these things and some of the questions that sort of I'd always been pondering and some of those topics I'm I'm really passionate about. But yeah, on the the side I also... I, I love sport and I sort of I love being an athlete myself and I've given the bodybuilding thing a crack and so I know what it takes to sort of get down to those nasty low levels of body fat as well, which yeah. certainly helps when when working with athletes, um, not only in physique sports but also um, sort of team sport athletes, combat athletes and, and guys like that. Before sort of the bodybuilding thing, I was a competitive rower um, and so I was, I was at a private school and, and sort of rowing was a very sort of, um, if you were sort of in, in the first eight, rowing is sort of a bit like royalty um, there. So rowing was a massive deal there. Um, so I um, got to a pr- pretty high level with rowing. Um, I also played football. My, my dad was an AFL footballer. Mm. Um, so I sort of got into football as, as a a young guy as well and and played got up to playing waffle level which is sort of the the league below afl i think are you guys in melbourne where, where are you guys in uh, brisbane right, so right. We're not we're not quite the afl yeah. Scene, but. Yeah. yeah you guys do you even know what afl is over there? No, <laughs> And I'm from Canada as well, so yeah, I'm probably even okay. worse. <laughs> I'm just speaking another language to you guys. And, and <laughs> anyway, played played football up until um, sort of around 21, and then I decided I was going to give the bodybuilding thing a fair go. And what when was I, that I, the turning point for you for from AFL to physique sports? Um, well, playing when you're playing at Waffle, um, which is sort of would be classed as a semi-professional league, you're training Monday, Tuesday, Thursday afternoons. You play Saturday, but you're pretty much at the ground all of Saturday and then back for presentation Saturday evening. Sunday mornings, recovery at the beach. So we're talking like at least a part-time job and we are getting paid like 250 bucks a game. So I was sort of like doing a, doing a part-time job for 250 bucks a week. but. Mm-hmm docking like 30 hours with this stuff and it sort of got to a point where um, it just really was sort of the cost and benefit wasn't really swung in the right way for me to continue it and and, and also, was, this, also, was this on top of your full-time studies as well undergrad yeah but yeah yeah, yeah, undergrad, undergrad. <laughs> yeah. no big deal <laughs> <there>. <laughs> um 
yeah, put honours honours are dialed up a little bit more. But undergrad, I was able to juggle it a little bit with, yeah. without too much issue. And then I was I was always lifting weights on the side as sort of the only reason that was to supplement sort of my football training and football performance. Yeah. Um, so I'd already had the weight training background, and then sort of around um, 21, 22, that's when I decided I was going to put the football to the side and and give give bodybuilding my full attention. Did that competed. Competed first in IMBA, won that show, and then later on, uh, a year and a half later, I went to the IFBB, and that was a little bit more difficult. Mm. Still managed to get first call out, which did okay. But when I competed in the IFBB, that was at the time where I was completing my, my honours degree, and honours is, is a massive step up to undergrad. And like I'm writing these thesis documents like 20,000 word sort of papers, and at the time, like I've got tabs open with like restaurant menus that I'm browsing like like study breaks and like that that just that just was not a really good combination um and I I just knew that my my focus needed to be on the studies and sort of when you're so food deprived sometimes it can it it can just become very difficult to sort of put full attentional focus on one thing without having sort of these persistent drives to eat and and this food focus coming so Jack and I can definitely relate to that because we did our first prep last year and that was the first semester of our Masters of Dietetics degree as well. So with full-time placement on top of a prep, we can definitely relate to the struggles there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So so when I, when I, gra- I, I sort of, I competed and graduated with my honours sort of around the same time. And at that point I decided, right, I'm not going to compete again during my PhD. That would just, mm. it just does not make sense. Um, and it would just make it... It was sort of one would take away from the other sort of thing, and I, I just decided bodybuilding is always going to be there. I can come back to it later on mm-hmm. if I want. Um, so for this three years or, 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 or so for the PhD, I was just I was going to decide not 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 to do these any severe diets or things like that that were going to compromise my ability to, yeah. to fully um, concentrate on my studies. And and um, I'm sort of I am an athlete at heart, so I can't do I can't do nothing. I can't just study. Yeah. That's when I decided to sort of take up boxing quite seriously. I'd always done boxing a little bit, and my dad was a boxer. Um, but um, when I was doing the bodybuilding and football thing, it just wasn't sort of the time for it. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't want to box during bo- uh, during bodybuilding because I think it would have sort of t- taken away from the from the bodybuilding a little bit. Mm-hmm. So now, sort of, without having the bodybuilding, without having the other sports. Um, and without boxing having sort of a massive cognitive demand that's going to take away from my studies, I, I decided to give that a full-on crack and hoping to have a few fights later on in the year. Nice. Fantastic. Yeah, we've been following on your Instagram and you're getting good. I can say that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we we really love how, like, you definitely put that interesting twist onto science and that's why we love following you through socials. And I think, it, yeah, not everyone is able to do that. So we really... Yeah, we we've referenced you quite a few times throughout the episode so far, and it's great to actually finally get you on. Oh, uh, appreciate it. Thank you. So, where do you think that like because you're doing your PhD now in the area of diet breaks? So, where did you discover that interest, and how did that come about getting into that PhD? Yeah, so it was it was difficult. So the the way that sort of the PhD. Um, program is set up is, is when you're at a university institution you've got sort of your your different departments that have sort of been researching sort of specialist sort of areas of the science or, or specific fields whether that be sort of supplements or cycling it can be very specific and things like that and they what they tend to do is 
they tend to have started studying these things sort of 10 years ago. And as the PhD students roll through, they try to push the PhD students to sort of continue the sort of studies that they've been doing in the past so they can sort of progress their knowledge and sort of thing. Now, the problem with me was when I started sitting down with my supervisors and they were like, okay, well, like we've been doing these projects last year, we could do a spin on it and so we can keep learning about this stuff. And I, I sort of said, yeah, I'm not really keen on, on doing that. I want to sort of do my own thing. And that was a massive problem because um, they sort of thought I was a little bit crazy because some of these guys hadn't even heard about like some of the things I was talking about, like diet rates yeah. and refeeds and things like that. And they were, they, were, they were very nervous because they, were, they sort of said, right, well, if like something goes wrong, like we're not, we're not going to know like what to do. We're not going to know how to, how to fix it. I was like, well, that's fine. But like I sort of got into the PhD with the assumption that I'm going to become a specialist in this, not having to, to rely on you. So mm. um, they, it said, it, it, they took a risk on me in the end um, and there were sort of to my detriment I, I, I probably chewed up like six months of my PhD literally in meetings with head of departments where they were sort of pushing these people like look at this project what do you think about this like we've got mm-hmm. all these because like you got to understand like departments like they buy all these equipments to, to sort of maybe do a study they've, mm-hmm. they've spent 50 grand on this equipment they don't want to just be like okay well we did our study they want to k- keep using the equipment things like that they don't have to keep doing new studies and keep setting multiple different pathways and I really wanted to start off on a new pathway and something that hadn't been done in in UWA or like even really in in Australia yeah well props to you for being so convincing like it's paid off it's tough though like like I'm a bit of a stubborn bastard and like (laughs) I I could I could certainly imagine like other people in my position that because maybe I had like 30 meetings where just running in circles like I could imagine so many people just being like Okay, fine. Like, righto. Like, we'll we'll do the project. Like, we'll do mm. this project you want to do. Um, but lucky, like, I think they probably hated me at the start um, because I just kept saying no to them. Um, but, but, but <laughs> like, yeah, goddamn, we need this guy because yeah. he's smart. But he's a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but essentially, where the idea of diet breaks came from as well. Um, I was I was doing I was tied in with the physique sports and mm. things like that, and I was trying to think of things that sort of people were using in practice, but hadn't really been tested um, in the li- literature just yet. And two things that I sort of thought about was number one was sort of these diet breaks and refeeds things like everyone's using them, but is there really much evidential support behind them? And another thing was sort of this this recovery diet or re- reverse diet now. I decided to go with the refeeds and diet breaks because I thought, right, if we take, if we're going to do a recovery or reverse diet study, we're taking guys, we're, we're, we're recruiting people who have, who have finished a diet. They're going to be super damn hungry, probably pretty grumpy. Like yeah. compliance is probably going to suck for, for, mm. for these guys. Like I can be telling them to trickle up their calories real slow in like a reverse diet group, but. Uh, I just I had a bad feeling. I was like, I, I know what it feels like to be post diet. Like, you can have all the reverse diet plans in the world, and you have your spreadsheet set up, but like, post diet, you're just so damn hungry, and sometimes like it's just so easy to slip. And I thought, far right, if if guys are slipping every couple of weeks, it's just gonna skew the hell out of my data. Um, so I decided to go with the uh, with the the refeed um, and diet break stuff. So that was sort of sort of how it started. I, I just thought, okay, what, where where are sort of the gaps in the, in the literature in sort of in physique sports and um, what things are being used and and used quite prevalently prevalently to be honest, but hadn't really been tested um, thoroughly yet, and so that's where I decided to start. 
And for all the listeners that uh, may not know um, what intermittent dieting is, can you just um, branch it out into diet breaks and refeeds for them? Yeah. So essentially the traditional dieting approach is something that we refer to as continuous energy restriction. Now, all that means is that the person's in a calorie deficit every day for the duration of the weight loss phase. Now, intermittent dieting or intermittent energy restriction contrasts that by alternating a period of dieting with it with a period of higher eating now there can be a little bit of that's a very broad definition um mm. but essentially this this period of higher higher feeding it can it can we can go about it in two ways that we can have sort of this refeed or we can have a diet break now now people use these terms interchangeably sometimes they just they they're, they're using these two words to refer to the same thing but um probably the easiest way that we can discriminate between the two is say that a refeed is probably like a 24 to 48 hour increase in calories that alternates with a period of dieting and a diet break is a little bit longer. So sort of three days up to sometimes even two weeks. Fantastic. Okay. So what made you want to pursue in looking at the diet breaks, which I guess people could almost even call the extended refeeds opposed to actually looking at refeeds? Yeah. So I, I was... I was going through all the intermittent dieting um, papers that I could find, so including refeeds and diet breaks. And at the just sort of just when I was starting this reading, a, a paper that got published and, and it received a, a massive amount of publicity. You're probably familiar with it. It's called the Matador study. Now they this was com- this was in completed in Sydney University, and essentially what they did is they had two groups. One was our continuous dieting group who did 16 weeks of dieting straight. And on the other side, we had this intermittent dieting group. Now they had two week diet breaks after every two weeks of dieting. They still did 16 dieting weeks, but they only did it in two week intervals before calories came up for another two weeks. So they just went two on, two off, two on, two off. And, And what they saw was that in the intermittent group that was having their diet breaks, Fat loss and weight loss um, was a lot better. Um, they re- retained their resting metabolic rate at a higher level, and they regained less of the weight post-diet. Um, now, that study was probably the most – this, this was a highly funded study, um, very tightly controlled. By tightly controlled, I mean that – so to – for, for the diet breaks that they gave every two weeks, they actually got the participants back in the lab to recalculate their RMR to give them a very specific amount of calories that they were going to have um, during their diet break period. They even went another step further where they calculated how many calories these people needed to be having on a day, whether it was a, a deficit day or, or a diet break day, and they provided them with all the food. So they said, don't buy mm. anything else. Here's your food for the day. So, wow. th- and, and this was like 150 participants. Like this mm. is this is multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars um, worth of funding um, for this study. And I ended up getting in contact with um, sort of one of the lead authors on this paper, um, Amanda Salas, who was over in Sydney. She's sort of like a high roller of like obesity research and I told her sort of that sort of the, the stuff that she's studying in obese people, we think it might have some application in, in trained athletes and, and lean people and what does she what does she think about that? And she said, right, well, I'm going to come over to Perth to have a chat with you. Mm-hmm. And she, she came over to Perth and we, we met and I sort of said, well, do you think what, – what's your sort of um, take on sort of these short-term refeeds, which lots of athletes are doing versus these longer-term sort of diet breaks where people might have higher calories for like a week or maybe two weeks like in the Matador? And her sort of position was that 
we that she doesn't think that sort of a one day or two day increase in calories is a, is enough of a sort of stimulus to sort of trigger trigger some of the normalization that we're trying to achieve with refeeds or diet breaks and she she was quite confident that sort of these longer term feeding periods high feeding periods might have benefits so that was why we just that was essentially why I decided um, to go with the diet breaks yeah it was I th- I think refeeds and diet breaks both have merit um I think diet breaks might be slightly better um, and that's why we decided to go with that. But yeah, it was mainly from essentially me speaking to one of the, the, the expert in the field of sort of intermittent dieting, at least in the context of obese people. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I think it's a very, very exciting time for you because your every other study has been involved with overweight or obese individuals. And I think you're, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're literally like one of the first two people who have are now investigating um, diet breaks for athletes. So, Correct. yeah. Yeah, and I bet you're pretty excited because the results that come out of these studies are probably going to change the game for mm. the world of physique competitors. So mm. you really are going to be known as the diet break guy. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have to ask, so I'm um, I'm pretty sure, so Renaissance Periodization, they're helping, they're supporting this study as well. How did mm-hmm. you get in contact with them? Um. Well, when I first started the study, um, well, I first started my PhD, I, I got in contact with Eric Helms. Um, actually, fire out, this was before, this was before my PhD had even started, actually. So I was, like I said, I was competing um, at the time where I was finishing my honours degree. And one of, one of my shows was in New Zealand, in Auckland specifically. And I was in Auckland and I knew Eric works at AUT University um, in Auckland and I hit him up just for an email and told him who I was. And at the time I sort of knew, like the university had already spoke to me, I sort of knew that a PhD was was sort of coming up and I knew that I was probably going to be a scholarship position and, and things like that. So I sort of already had a – I knew that I was going to be working – sort of doing some a massive research project very soon um i told eric about that um i said pretty much oh can we sort of have a coffee and he was like nah, nah screw that like i'll come pick you up <laughs> so, so he came and picked me up from my hotel and like i spent the whole day with him out of his university and like watched some of his data collection um so essentially we got quite tight and a lot of the planning for the ice cap study, so sorry, the, the diet break study that I'm doing at the moment was mm. a lot of discussions with Eric because um, Eric hasn't tested these things in research, but he's used them a lot in practice with his sort of his athletes at 3DMJ and whatnot. Um, so essentially I got really close with Eric and it got to a point where the study was underway and it gets to a point where you sort of say, okay, so how are we going to pay for all this? And I asked him, I said, sort of, with his, his PhD, where, where did he get money from? Like, where did he get money for his projects and things? And he suggested um, getting in contact with Mike Isretel. And so I did. And I told, I pretty much just pitched my idea to Mike, um, told him the whole project and what I wanted to do and, and told him how much it, things were going to cost. And he said, yep, I like it. <laughs> Tell Nick Shaw to pay you. <laughs> Damn, that's <laughs> yeah. awesome. So, so it, was, it was, yeah, it was quite like, I think having sort of having Eric vouch for me was a, a majorly important component of that. I think if I was just some loser cold emailing him, he'd probably be less likely to to sort of um, put put money forward. But I, I think because Eric was like, yeah, this study's good, this guy's good, it'd be a good it'd be a good investment for you guys. Um, that that's sort of the way it happened. Yeah. 
So I guess it would be a good idea now to um, explain to our listeners exactly what is the study that you're undertaking? What are you looking at? What is the protocol? Right. So it's it's been it's modified a little bit from the Matador diet break study, which is sort of the most convincing evidence that we've got to date that shows diet breaks are effective. Now, one of the problems with the Matador study is it's essentially 16 weeks of dieting with 16 weeks of diet breaks if you sort of add it all up together because it's two on, two off. Now, one of the downsides of a, of a protocol like that specifically for athletes is sometimes whether, not necessarily with physique athletes, but a lot of the time with sports athletes, they might only have sort of maybe three months of their season that they can dedicate to sort of the weight loss phase or something like mm -hmm. that. Now, if we're trying to tell these guys to a 32-week sort of weight loss phase with like two weeks dieting and then two weeks diet break, that could probably be enough to turn them away from it because... Yeah, it's like it's diet breaks, but it's still like fairly mat meticulous calorie tracking. You're eating mm, yeah. caloric maintenance. You're not, you're not going to feel completely satiated or anything like that. So what we what we were sort of um, thinking about was, well, okay, if we could do a diet break study, but the diet breaks were not as long as two weeks and not as frequent as every two weeks, could we still see benefits to sort of like better fat loss, retaining sort of lean mass, retaining RMR and, and things like that? Because if that was the case, that would make a sort of a diet break protocol sort of more appealing to athletes because they still get the benefits, but it's not doubling the length of the intervention. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, we set up a, 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 um, a protocol that has three weeks of dieting so a little bit longer of a dieting phase before a, re uh, before a diet break. And then the diet breaks only last for one week. So it doesn't double the length of the intervention. Um, so if you've got like a, if you want to do 12 dieting weeks um, and you're having a one week diet break after every three weeks of dieting, it's only adding on the extra three weeks sort of thing. Yeah. So it's not, it's, not, it's not a massive, it's not a massive difference to the length. Um, so essentially we've got two groups. Our continuous dieting group is doing 12 weeks of dieting straight, a, a moderate deficit. Um, and then our intermittent group, they're doing the 12 dieting weeks as well. But like I said, they've got those one-week diet breaks after every three weeks of dieting. And those diet breaks are predicted caloric maintenance. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. And then um, how are you, like, identifying what their caloric maintenance is, like, at each of these time points? Yeah. So... Um, with Matador, like I said, that they they were really accurately measuring RMR all the time, monitor for changes and, and, and things like that. Now, that's great, and that's a way to really tightly control a study. But with the study that we were designing, we wanted to make a protocol that was sort of very practical and usable by athletes. And if we had a protocol that was predicated on athletes need, needing to remeasure their RMR all, all the time to sort of get to work out how many calories that they'd need to eat, it just wouldn't work because athletes don't have access to that sort of stuff. Um, so essentially what we did is before the 12 weeks of dieting start, we have this weight maintenance phase. So we put sort of their high weight activity sort of thing through um, the DRI equations, which is sort of like a validated um, dietary reference intakes for like predicting caloric maintenance. Now, this is a rough estimate. It's, it's, it's going to undershoot people. It's going to overshoot some people. But what we do, we just get this number and then we say, okay, day one of the weight maintenance phase, this is the amount of calories that you're starting on. Now, what we do is we get all our participants to log their weight every day during this phase. 
Now, if their weight starts moving in one direction for three days in a row, then we make a caloric change. So if their weight starts going up, up, up for three days in a row, we bring calories down a little bit. If it starts mm. going down, 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 we bring, them up, we bring them up a little bit. Now, what that means is so we're titrating calories up and down during this four-week dieting phase. And usually by the second or third week, we've made enough changes to we've actually worked out, okay, this is how many calories are eating here and weight stable now. So mm-hmm. that's probably – that's a really – a really accurate way to do it. It takes a little bit more time. It probably t- takes us three weeks longer than if we were just going to remeasure. If we're just going to base it off RMR and sort of um, activity expenditures with mm-hmm. like a, a, a activity tracker or something like that. Um, so it takes a little bit longer, um, but it's very easy to work out accurately that that their caloric maintenance needs because we can very see. Okay, well they're eating this much here, and their their weight didn't change more than 200 grams for five days or something like that. Um, so then when we know their caloric maintenance needs, um, we end the weight maintenance phase and we start the energy restriction phase. And we give them a caloric reduction that's um, based on a predicted 0.7% body weight loss um, per week. So mm-hmm. um, usually recommendations for, for athlete body weight loss is somewhere between half to 1% of your body weight per week. Mm-hmm. Um, so we decided to go um, right right in the middle there. Now for for diet breaks, um, for, the, for the diet breaks that they get after every three weeks of dieting, um, we're not re-measuring their RMR. To, to, to choose how many to decide how many calories and eat here all we're doing is we're accounting for the loss of tissue mass that they've had from baseline so their, their diet breaks do change every time they have them so that they get three diet breaks each diet break their, their diet break calories are different but it's just due to the loss of tissue mass because obviously we know um, fat-free mass and fat mass is metabolically active so the more of it we lose the, the less calories we burn so that that's the way we do we do it so it's quite a, a usable protocol then athlete can read the study and be like okay i can set myself up at my own sort of weight loss intervention with diet breaks mm-hmm. so and i was also wondering so how often because you're using a, a dexter machine to measure these body composition changes how at what time points are you taking dexter measures so um it gets a little bit complicated. In, in the continuous group, we get we measure at baseline, and then we measure after 12 weeks of deficit weeks in mm-hmm. the continuous group. Then we give them – so those three diet break weeks that the intermittent group is, we put those three weeks at the end of the continuous group. Mm-hmm. So we measure after 12 weeks of dieting, then they have three weeks at maintenance, and we measure again one last mm-hmm. time. Yeah. In, the, in the intermittent group, we measure sort of at week zero again, then after 12 dieting weeks, which works out to actually be week 15 in real time because I've had 12 dieting weeks and then three weeks um, mm-hmm. of diet breaks. Also, it's after 12 weeks of dieting, but actually 15 weeks of absolute time. And then we measure their DEXA again a week later after a diet break week. So that's the way we're doing. So that gives us the luxury of being able to compare primary outcomes sort of after equal absolute time and after equal time in energy restriction. Nice. And also, I'm just wondering about, so are you only strict on calories or are each athlete, are they all on the same macronutrient split as well for their calories? Yeah. So the the macronutrient split is 2.3 grams of protein per kilo of body weight. Again, we took, we, it more, probably more, a little bit more accurate to go based on lean mass. But again, we thought, well, a lot of athletes don't have access to very accurate measures Mm. of sort of body comp. So let's just do it by body weight. So Every person has 2.3 grams of protein per kilo of body weight, 20% of their calories allocated to dietary fat, and then the remainder of the calories is carbohydrates. So that would be classed as quite a moderate to low-fat diet, 
um, yeah. with, with, with sort of as much calories as we can fit in with it, with, with as much carbohydrate as we can allocate to the leftover calories because we do think that there's a reasonable rationale for sort of higher carbohydrate versus higher fat diets mm. for, for athletes. Yeah, we've definitely, we've had a, quite a few conversations on the podcast about the higher carb, lower fat approach and we're, yeah, we're definitely with you on that as well. Mm -hmm. I actually just finished reading your view paper yet again because that was had quite a few heavy hitter names on it. You were with Lane Norton, Eric Helms, Andrew Galpin and, and Paul as well. Yeah. And that was, came out pretty recently, didn't it, at the start of this year? Uh, right late at the end of last year, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, can you tell us a bit about that? Because, um, yeah, I think really great summary on diet break. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, when, whenever you're doing research, um, the first first thing you sort of start with is, is a literature review where um, you choose the area that you're going to research and then you go and find all, this, all the relevant studies in that area. And you sort of analyze them and collect them and make sort of an analysis of sort of the general trends and findings. Now, that's what I was doing in the, in the context of intermittent dieting. So I was, I was grabbing on, I was grabbing my hands on all the intermittent dieting studies I could find, um, sort of analyzing them, writing comments. And essentially, I was doing it quite formally and jotting everything down and referencing everything. And it, it got to a point where I was sort of like, mm, I can probably make this into a formal publication. This stuff's pretty good. Um, and this certainly hasn't really been done in the context of athletes. Like, People have talked about intermittent dieting, um, but it's only ever been in the context of over, people with overweight and obesity. Um, so I got in contact, yeah, with, with the big dogs, Eric, Lane, and Andy, um, and I sort of said to them, well, number one, this this hasn't been done before, and number two, we know that sort of lots of the athletes you work with, so, so Lane and Eric, Eric work, works with sort of powerlifters and, and physique athletes, Lane physique athletes, um, Andy with combat fighters. Now, we knew that a lot of these guys were, were using things like refeeds and diet breaks, um, but there wasn't really an evidence-based resource anywhere that told people sort of how's the best way to go about an intermittent diet and what are some of the considerations you, need, you, you might need to make when, when, when going through an intermittent diet. So I said, right, well, how about we go through all the intermittent dieting paper we can formally put it together, make an analysis of the findings, um, make some make some comments, and then... From the general findings of the paper and the literature, can we translate these into some practical applications for athletes? And 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 that's exactly what we did. And we sort of shot, we sort of said there's a pretty strong rationale for at least intermittent moderate energy restriction to outperform continuous energy restriction from a from a, a fat loss standpoint. Sometimes a lean mass retention standpoint, um, and sometimes for for retaining sort of resting metabolic rate. And we also gave some, some specific guidelines on, on, on how to um, how to set up um, an intermittent diet, and I can get into those those recommendations if you think that would be worthwhile. Yeah, that yeah, would I be that would be that. fantastic. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. So um, some some of these recommendations also apply to sort of a continuous diet, but we included them anyway. So I'll start with the basic ones. Um, so whether you're doing an intermittent diet or a continuous diet, you want your athlete to be having. Um, quite a high protein intake, higher than they typically have um, during a weight stable phase of their season. So somewhere between two to two point six grams of protein per kilo of their body weight is a, is, a, is a pretty good place to be. And we know that we know that that's a pretty good place to be because when comparing sort of a protein dose in that range to sort of a lower protein intake, typically we see sort of greater retention of lean mass, 
um, and we care about lean mass because lean mass includes things like muscle mass. Um, and obviously there's, um, there's an aesthetic component for physique athletes and a performance component for sports athletes with retaining muscle. Um, we also know that lean mass is, is more met metabolically active than fat mass. So the more of it we can retain means the, the higher we're going to be able to retain our, uh, sort of our resting metabolic rate um, and the higher we can we can maintain main, maintain that means weight loss is going to be a little bit more efficient and there's less likelihood of rapid weight regain post diet. We also know that with with higher protein diets, they generally provide greater satiety, which means managing appetite becomes a little bit easier. Um, and we've got that small benefit of increased energy expenditure through through being a higher thermic effect of feeding um, in protein versus carbs or fat. So that's the protein stuff. With sort of your rate of weight loss, it doesn't matter whether you're doing continuous or intermittent dieting. Um, you want the rate of weight loss to be moderate. And we know that we want it to be moderate because when you can, when you look at sort of the some intermittent diets you use very aggressive sort of intermittent fasting um, type protocols, usually you, you don't see that they're any better than a continuous dieting approach. Um, they just don't seem to be very very effective. But when you when you compare intermittent energy restriction that has a moderate sort of caloric deficit, that's when we start to see really good results when comparing it to sort of traditional dieting. But yeah, so we want our, our rate of weight loss. Um, per week, week to be quite moderate. I touched on it before, but some somewhere between half a percent to one percent of your body weight per week is a pretty good place to be. Mm. If you don't want to do it by body weight, limiting the caloric deficit to 35% below weight maintenance requirements is also a pretty good spot to be. Another one is a fairly obvious one, um, especially for probably for your listeners, is um, we want our athletes to be to be doing weight training during these these diets. Um, because again, when comparing it to a weight loss intervention with no weight training, typically we see better retention of lean mass, better performance impairment, sorry, better performance retention. And obviously I just talked about the benefits of retaining lean mass um, just before. Yeah. Now, the, the last couple, are sort of, they, they only apply to intermittent diets. Now, the first one is in regards to sort of, well, we know that we need to increase calories during a refeed or diet break, but does it matter where these sort of where are these calories coming from? Um, because if it didn't matter on a refeed or diet break, we could just increase the calories we prefer. If someone likes fats, we'll just give them a, a bunch of peanut butter on their refeed or something and happy days. Um, but there is a, a pretty strong rationale that increasing carbohydrate during a refeed or diet break is going to be better than increasing protein or fat. Um, and we think this for a couple of reasons. Um, the first reason is we know that Carbohydrate, sorry, leptin, which is this this um, this special hormone that regulates our energy expenditure and our, and our hunger levels. Um, leptin is is really sensitive to carbohydrate. Now, what we saw is that in in a few studies, sort of back in the two thousands, um, when you give gave people a bunch of carbohydrates, you got this short term sort of release of leptin into the blood, and when this happens. It, it triggered an increase in metabolism or an increase in energy expenditure. Essentially, the people burn more calories throughout the day because of these higher leptin levels in the blood. We also know that leptin, sort of the more leptin we have in the blood, is sort of a signal to be more satiated, less hungry. So there's also a theory that if we've got more leptin, um, we're sort of managing that, managing our appetite is going to be a little bit easier. We're not, we're not so hungry all the time. So 
because carbohydrate, because because leptin is sensitive to carbohydrate, we, there's there's a there's a theory that if you give someone a bunch of carbs on their refeed or diet break, um, it's going to trigger a leptin response. It's got, might tr- might sort of cause a little bit of normalization of resting metabolic rate that was typically being suppressed during the dieting weeks. It might take it back to sort of be closer to baseline. And it might sort of restore our, our hunger levels to a little bit closer to baseline too. Um, but that's that's highly speculative. Um, luckily, I'm taking blood in my ice cap study, and mm. we're going to be we're going to be looking at leptin. So, mm. um, yeah. and we, we are giving a high carb diet break, so we're going to be able to test whether this is actually true, true or bogus, um, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because in your paper you make reference to leptin, ghrelin, thyroid hormone. And I was going to ask, how often are you measuring those blood parameters in your study? So it, the, the the blood's measured at the same time points as the DEXA. So okay, cool. um, in the continuous group, it's, it's zero, 12 weeks of dieting, and then after three weeks sort of at maintenance, and then the intermittent group, it's at zero, and after... 15 weeks, 12 weeks of dieting and three weeks of diet break. And then we're going to measure again um, after the end of one diet break. Now, that's going to be a cool figure because we're going to have a measure of leptin after three weeks of dieting. And then we're going to have mm. a measure of leptin after seven days of caloric maintenance. So mm. yeah. what we're, what we're, what we're, we're not really hoping to see what we, we what we might see is we see a, a sort of this short term sort of boost in leptin after those seven days with high calories, which would, mm. would give some basis to the theory that, that sort of these higher carbohydrate, the carbohydrate dominant refeeds, um, that the benefits could be sort of being driven pri- primarily by leptin. Yeah. And because you've been running these studies for quite a number of months now, are you able to share any preliminary results or anything anecdotally that you've seen? Or yeah, so you're not allowed not allowed to analyze the numbers, um, mm-hmm. just because if, if a researcher is doing a project like that and they they get sort of a, a hint that sort of the numbers are going one way, it can bias mm-hmm. things later on, especially yes. especially if the researcher is sort of wanting wanting the results to go one way. Um, mm-hmm. So I haven't looked, crunched any of the numbers, but obviously, like I'm still seeing numbers every sort of not the bloods, but I'm still DEXA scanning. I see those numbers. I see the resting metabolic rate and things like that. In terms of body comp- composition changes in the two groups, in the continuous and, and diet break group, probably uh, I, I think it's I can't see a difference yet. But the differences you got to keep in you got to remember that the differences that we're looking for are like one kilo better retention of lean yeah. mass or like one one kilo better sort of fat loss. So I probably wouldn't be able to eyeball those differences anyway, um, mm. just by purely looking at the DEXA results. Um, but some things that I definitely have noticed is sort of comes down to sort of the, the, the psychological component. Now, we do think that there's a rationale for intermittent diets to have at least a mental or psychological superiority over continuous diets because we know that a 12-week diet straight is sort of – it's quite daunting. And, and sometimes we, when we take an athlete, they might be feeling pretty shitty at like week five of the diet or something like that. They've got seven more hard diet weeks in front of them with no breaks. It can become quite overwhelming, and that can be a recipe sort of for poor dietary control or, or falling off the wagon. Now, if you if you take that 12 weeks but you break it up into only three-week blocks and then you give them a, a one week of high calories um, intermittently, um, I think it might just make sort of the total weight loss phase a little more sort of manageable for the athlete, less daunting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that in itself could be better for adherence because even if they're feeling maybe crappy on week three of a deficit block, 
they only need to hang on for a few more days and, and they know calories are kind of come up and they're going to feel a little bit better and their training's going to be a little bit better too. I also think that because with these higher calorie periods that come up every now and again, depending on the way they set it up, um, it can give the the sort of the athlete an opportunity to have like a social occasion with family or something like that during yeah. a diet break or a, or a refeed period. Um, so because sometimes they might have an extra 400 or 500 calories to play with, that might mean, okay, I might just have a little bit less for breakfast during this day, but then I'll go have a, like a steak dinner with my family. And I think just having not feeling sort of still having that social component um, where you can sort of interact and feel relatively normal um, and not have to take your Tupperware everywhere. I think that in itself can have a benefit as well and it could just overall just make the dieting process a little bit more enjoyable. So that's the theory behind it. And But because I'm working, I've probably had maybe 25 athletes sort of completed the, the study now and I, I speak with them every week. I get, I, I'm always asking them things. They're doing questionnaires, but I'm also like asking them feedback on the fly as well. Um, and I will say, just from my general perception, like my interactions with them and sort of noting their mood states and things like that, I, w- I would say that the intermittent group just seems to be a whole lot more positive overall. Yeah. And like comparing some of the continuous dieters, like I, I see them at week zero and week 12, um, they're different people sometimes, yeah. like <laughs> completely different people. Um, and like the, the, the mood, sort of the mood impairment is not- notable in that group, that's for sure. Um, and it, it's, it does seem like, yeah, the intermittent group just just might have a little bit more of a positive mood state. Um, mm. And we're test, we're going to test it with a profile of mood states inventory as well. But um, that's just from my, my eye and in interacting with them. And sometimes, like when I when I'm like, okay, here's your diet break calories for this week. Like, yes, like hell yeah. Yeah, like, so excited. Oh, yeah, like, it, and like, sometimes I feel sorry for the mm-hmm. continuous dieter groups um, mm-hmm. because that they just don't get any of those breaks. Yeah, so yeah, they're some of the things I've noticed. So yeah, Jackson. Before we wrap up, we Tierra and I just wanted to ask you a few questions and to, just to get your insight on it around dieting and from anecdotal experience and from experience with clients as well. We've noticed that weight loss will continue even at a stage of maintenance calories or perceived maintenance calories, for example, during the later stages of prep. And we were wondering why you might think that is because we have heard a lot about there's less stress associated with those. Like, for example, if you're doing a four low day, three high day protocol, and even on your high days, despite eating at maintenance, you'll still continue to lose weight. Mm. Um, I think there could be a couple of reasons. And this is... This is me guessing a little bit, and I don't think anyone really has a solid answer to this yet. Um, well, not one that not that I'm aware of, anyway. Um, because I have seen I have seen um, people drop weight in sort of diet breaks where technically they're expected to be at maintenance. Now, the first most obvious reason is that sort of the predicted maintenance calories that you've given them may be too low, um, and they just continue in a deficit, and, that, and that's that's what's caused sort of continued weight loss when you'd expect weight to be stable. But there, there is this other theory, like you touched on, this, this, this whooshing effect theory. And now we know that sort of when you look at sort of, particularly in lean athletes when they're dieting, you, you, you get this sort of cortisol accumulation, high cortisol levels in the blood. Um, and it's speculated that this this cortisol stress response is tied to sort of sort of this water retention effect. And with that in mind, that there's this theory that when you give someone a refeed or a diet break, um, 
they don't feel so constantly they're not feeling so constantly deprived at this point um they feel a little bit more relaxed and just it just might be that sort of cortisol resolves itself a little bit and and when that happens sort of the 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 sort of water gets rid of it Mm. get you get rid of the water and that that's what's showing the weight so it might not typically be sort of fat loss per se potentially just fluid loss but there's this one you might not be familiar with there there was a study um uh, called the minnesota starvation study um was a crazy study one of my favorite studies um (laughs) in the world like ever we could do a whole podcast like i could tell you that (laughs) so starvation a whole podcast easy but one one of the findings that they found was um so essentially it was like quite a heavy diet. These guys were on like 1,600 calories a day and quite active, um, essentially basically in a concentration camp. And what they saw is when these guys were dieting, um, they were getting this sort of this edema, this fluid buildup, um, a lot of the time in lower limbs as well. Now, this study was completed in the 1940s, and this edema effect of weight loss or food restriction still hasn't really been sort of teased out really yet um we know that it sometimes can happen um because it's not it's noted in in the literature um i'm not totally convinced that it's purely just a a result of cortisol causing the edema i'm not sort of sure what else it is either though but with 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 the with the concept because we know that edema can can build up when calories get super low that could be in the context of like a, a physique athlete sort of in the, in the later stages of contest prep, it might yeah. just be a fact that sort of um, when calories come up to energy balance, it might cause sort of a resolution of this edema that's been building up from the really low calories. Um, mm. I'm just not totally sure what's causing the, the edema itself, but it seems to be it seems to be an unusual side effect of, of very low calories. Yeah. Well, that's definitely a future area of research for sure. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, Jackson, we're probably going to have to, we're coming up on an hour now, but I thought we'd just quickly ask you, when do you plan to wrap up your study and what are your future plans in the area of academics and your own sporting endeavors? So the study, like the things with a PhD is everything takes a hell of a lot longer than you think it's going to take, like by like double sometimes. So I might be a little bit optimistic here, but. I'd like to think that I can finish data collection for the big RCT somewhere around maybe June or July. Uh, probably not June, but maybe July or August. <laughs> <laughs> like, because stuff just, like, I, I, I've got 25 through. I've got about 15 still in the diet study. You probably need to recruit about 15 more. Um, yeah. So if, if I could get it done, wrapped up around about August, then probably got three months of data analyses a month to sort of write up the thesis and, and sort of decide what journal I want to uh, want to submit it to um, and think like that. And then you, you can send a paper off to a journal for review and you might not see it back for another three months or four months. Like oh, it's crazy. It's so, it's so frustrating sometimes because yeah. like you're going so hard out at getting this paper ready and off to the journal like, yes, it's done. I mean, <laughs> you, don't, you don't get out of it for half a year. It's like it's so frustrating sometimes. Um, but yeah, so that, that, that's with the, with the ice cap study, um, or sorry, the diet break study. Um, I have got another project in the works that I haven't spoken about this, um, on a podcast before, but what we're planning to do is there, there's a theory that depending on how lean someone is, um, or how long, or how much weight loss I've lost sort of in, in their fat loss phase, that it can 
It can impact the way that, that they respond to a refeed or diet break. So we're planning to do a study where we're going to go – so we've got the IMBA bodybuilding shows coming up in around September um, in, in WA. Um, and what we're planning to do is go and grab a bunch of sort of – bodybuilders from different stages in their prep so some will be like a little bit fatter maybe about 15 weeks out some a little bit leaner some really lean like a couple week couple weeks out or something like that and so we're going to have like a, a guys from a number of different body comps and, and dieting for a different amount of time before testing but what we're going to do is we're going to give them a seven day diet break um, and what we're going to do is we're going to measure rmr sort of before the, the diet break and then after one day, after two days, after three days and after seven days. Um, we're also going to get them to do some of the psychological um, measures as well. So what this will tell us is, it tell us a few things. So we'll be able to see, okay, is one and two day refeeds enough to start triggering resting metabolic rate normalization? Because maybe it might see that we only start seeing things start going back to normal at three days or seven days or something like that. So it's going to be the first study that's actually plotted a time course of sort of RMR restoration of the diet break. Um, another thing that we're going to be able to see is because um, Eric speculates that there's more benefit for, for the leaner you are um, when you're doing a refit or diet break and that you sort of might get more restoration from a refit or diet break when, when, when you're really lean. So what we're, going to, what we're going to do is we're going to separate sort of our participants into like quartiles of leanness and we're going to see what are the different responses that they had to the, to, to the diet breaks, for example. So are the really lean people, do they get a bigger boost in, in resting metabolic rate coming from their diet break versus a guy that's only been dieting for a couple of weeks and doesn't really have that much metabolic suppression anyway. Um, mm. So that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a study that we've got in the works at the moment. Mm. That sounds very interesting, yeah, because – that might provide some more insight as well into when is most effective to start implementing those diet yes. breaks. So. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like we could, we, we might find that we give a diet break to someone that's only dieted for like two weeks or something at 15% body fat. Maybe they get no benefits from it. So it's like, what's mm. the point? So yeah, yeah. We, we should be able to learn a bit from that. Mm -hmm. And the good thing is, is that if you ever plan to compete again in the future, or you can even implement this with your boxing, you're going to know damn for certain the right protocol to do for yourself. <laughs> for sure, yeah. Yeah, it'll be good. Sweet. Okay, so Jackson, um, the final question that we usually end with on the podcast is one thing that you learned this week, and this doesn't have to be nutrition or fitness related, it can be absolutely anything, but something you didn't already know at the beginning of this week. Okay, so I'm a massive pasta eater. I've probably eaten pasta every week since I was about three years old. And um, my favorite pasta is spaghetti bolognese. And for 25 years, I thought bolognese was spelled B-O-L-O-G-N-A-I-S-E. And oh, yes, <laughs> yesterday I was showing the real spelling of it and I couldn't believe it. And now I'm shocked and I feel like my whole life was a lie. But that's what I learned this week. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably the worst answer to this question you've ever had, right? <laughs> no, we've had a few good ones. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Um, so, Jackson, where... Like, this guy's an idiot. He's not coming back on. <laughs> well, at least you didn't have to write that in your review paper. Yeah. Otherwise, it would have come up with... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Jackson, where can people find you if they want to get in contact or see all of your great work? Um, best, best place is Instagram. That's where I'm most active. Um, all, all the stuff that's going on with my own research I'll, I'll put out on there um, as well as sort of 
any of the latest um, nutrition research, I, I try to keep up to date with that. And if, if cool studies come out, I'll usually do sort of I'll condense it into sort of some of the ch- some of the key takeaways, and I'll, I'll do a post and I'll, I'll chuck in some Simpsons Simpsons memes on top of that. Yeah. Um, but I think that people like that because not everyone has time to sort of go thirty five minutes reading sort of um, a paper or something like that. So I try to condense it into sort of a two minute read or something like that where people can sort of still get benefit from there. So I'm quite active on Instagram. Um, that's just at Jackson Pios. Um, for some of the more nerdy crew um, that want to keep up with some of my formal research and things like that, ResearchGate, um, Jackson Pios as well, is is a, is a good place to find me too. Sweet. All right. Yeah, well. thanks so much again for coming back on, and we would love to have you back um, potentially once you've written everything up or even in a couple of months to check in and see how everything is going. So, yeah, thanks again. Sure, man. I'd love to. Thank you. All right. Thank you. No worries. See you later, guys.